Welcome to Elevate Your Direct Sales Business with Kelly Northcott. I'm your host, Kelly Northcott, and I'm so glad that you're here. I've been in the direct sales industry for over 20 years. When I was in the field, I was a top performer and leader, and now I have a growing coaching business that helps direct sellers of all titles from all companies build businesses that they love. If you're a direct seller who wants to get more out of her business and have fun doing it, you're in the right place. Tune in each week to learn systems so that you can scale and grow, implement mindset principles and practices to get out of your own way, and get coaching to break through to new levels of your business. We've been talking about how to find and attract your dream team. And in this episode, I want to talk about why you want to avoid recruiting kidnappers. I almost called this episode, the perils, pitfalls, and problems of not recruiting the right people the right way. When I first started recruiting, I'd recruit anyone who was over 18, didn't live in my house and was breathing. It kind of became my tagline and I didn't really mean for it to be true, but for a while, the only things my team members had in common were that they were over 18, didn't live in my house and were breathing. I wanted to promote to leadership. I didn't care who was on my team as long as I met their qualifications to promote. I thought that if I could just get them through the door, they would catch the vision, fall in love with everything, and want to build a business, even if it was a small business. So I focused on getting as many people as I could through the door, however I could. I thought I was taking a shortcut, but what I was really doing was going far off course. There will be times when you need one or two more people for a title or a trip. And anyone who is willing to sign up and either order enough to get active or let you do a party for them will do. Some people refer to these people as placeholders. And I get it. You want that quick win. But what you're going to realize by the time you finish this episode is that a quick win is very expensive. This recruiting strategy makes your business messy. It takes time away from the things that are going to really help you make progress. It's a huge distraction and it strains your relationships. And the worst part about it is that it messes with your mindset. You're in the people business. And whenever you look at people as a number or as a means to an end, it's not going to feel good and it's not going to go well. Using a recruiting strategy that attracted kidnappers and hobbyists was the worst and the best thing that happened to my business. I learned a huge lesson, but it was very, very expensive and it almost cost me my business. So let me help you with this lesson. Let me explain what I did, what I learned and what it cost me so that I can save you the trouble, the time and the expense. When someone hosted a party, I told her that if she signed up, I would do all the work and she would get all the sales, the bookings, the recruit leads, and the host credit. All she had to do was invite her friends and she'd have an instant business. Now, they were happy to get a great deal on the products that were in the kit, get some money back from the sales for their kit, and get a lot of host rewards, but most of them didn't want a business. The party sales were usually enough for my new recruits to be considered active, which meant that I got trip points, group volume, and had another active downline toward my title. But let's talk about what that cost me. Let's say an average party was $500 in sales. Our sales commission started at 30%. So the minimum profit on a $500 party was $150. When I did the party for a host, I got the commission. When I did it for a downline, she got it. I got 7% of what my downline sold, which means that when I did an average party for one of my downline, I made $35 instead of $150, even though I was doing all the work. I almost always got one or two bookings from every party. But of course, when I was doing the parties for someone else, that person got the bookings. 
If I recruited Susie and Susie didn't want a business, she didn't pursue the bookings. So then no one ended up getting them. I wasn't going to contact her friends and offer to do parties for them. Instead, I kept reminding Susie that she should contact her friends and schedule their parties. And usually the parties didn't happen because Susie didn't want a business. So Susie's friends missed out on host credits and their friends missed out on being introduced to her amazing products. And I was annoyed that Susie wasn't serving her customers. But in Susie's eyes, they weren't her customers. They were her friends. Now, if I wouldn't have bribed Susie to become a consultant, I would have gotten $150 from her party and the $300 from her two friends' parties. So now I missed out on $450 in commission. If Susie would have done those parties, she would have gotten the $300 from those parties and I would have gotten my 7% on them. But because we reached a dead end, no one got anything, no customers were served, and no new customers were introduced to our amazing products. And it doesn't end there. Most of my bookings came from parties, so chances are the party chain would have continued. Most of my team members, including the ones who actually wanted to have a business, came from my customer base. So in addition to missing out on a 30% commission on every party that I didn't get to do and all the future parties that I could have booked from those parties, I also missed out on building relationships and getting recruit leads. I traded future sales, bookings, and recruits for one active team member and $35. Now, at the time, it seemed like a win-win for both of us, but none of us won, including Susie's friends, because she didn't offer them any service or customer care. Well, why should she? In her eyes, they weren't customers because she didn't have a business. When a host didn't join my team before a party, but the guests who came to her party made repeat purchases, I would go back and tell her about them, and I would let her know that if she signed up, all she would have to do is share her link with her friends. And then that's where it got really messy. All of my host guests were in my customer base, on my email list, and in my customer care groups. I was serving them. If Susie joined for the discount and not the opportunity, she looked at it as being the head of a buying club or as an affiliate, and all she did was share her link. So she didn't serve them as customers, and she didn't really need to because they were still in my customer care program. So they were getting all their questions answered by me, but then they would go to Susie's website to place their order. I didn't remove Susie's friends from my customer base, and I'll address that in a minute, but I also didn't give them the same service I gave everyone else because I knew they were buying from Susie, and I didn't want it to be awkward between Susie and me. So they didn't get the individual customer care messages that I sent. I didn't offer them the host opportunity, and I didn't invite them to opportunity events. Susie wasn't doing those things for them either, which means their customer experience wasn't great, and they wouldn't be inspired to continue to go through the stages of sponsoring with her or with me. In my experience, hobbyists typically maintain their active status for about two or three sales cycles. When they quit, some of their customers started buying with me again, but because I barely served them when they were buying from their hobbyist friends, we lost our connection. So once again, I traded future business, future parties, and future team members just to have one active consultant on my team and make a few dollars. Now, let me pause here and share my thoughts about having your downlines friends in your customer base and in your VIP group. When one of my customers joined my team, whether she was a business builder or not, I didn't remove her friends from my list or my customer group because if they quit, I didn't have any way to reconnect with her friends. I figured it was everyone's choice who they shopped with, and some of them didn't want to shop with their friends. If the party was virtual, they might not even be friends. They might have just been connected on social media somehow. 
I didn't reach out to my downline's friends and make them individual offers to buy, book, or join, but they got the same group information that all my customers got. So if they approached me to buy, book, or join, I served them. I didn't tell them they should contact their friend first. I assumed they made a deliberate decision. The other big cost of recruiting kidnappers and hobbyists is time. They want the best of both worlds. They want the discount that they get as a consultant, but they also want the service they were used to getting as a customer. So they would ask me questions that my customers would ask. They would ask about products, such as how to use them, what's coming, when is it coming, and what's retiring. They would also ask procedural questions that consultants ask. They would ask how to get their host rewards, how to open and close a party, and how to return an item. And they would ask these questions repeatedly because it was easier for them to ask me than to figure it out on their own or to learn the information from And they would ask these questions repeatedly because it was easier for them to ask me than to figure out on their own or to learn the information for the next time. And I would answer them every single time they asked me because I wanted them to remain a consultant or at least do something. So I was trying to serve four groups, my customers, my downlines customers who used to be my customers and might become my customers again, the business builders on my team, and the hobbyists who I hoped would become business builders, but might not even revert to customer status when they inevitably quit. If a customer joined and already owned a lot of items that were in the kit, I would offer to swap out those items. So then I was stuck with a bunch of repeat items that I wasn't getting any credit for. If one of their friends wanted a retired item, I would swap products with them or I would try to track down the item for them. Now, this might not seem like a big deal, but it took time and energy away from my goals. If she was local, I would arrange a pickup and sometimes she came and sometimes she didn't. And sometimes when she came, she forgot the item that she was trading and then we'd have to arrange another rendezvous and sometimes it dragged out for weeks before it was all said and done. Now, if she wasn't local, I would have to mail the item. And even though I collected the payment and shipping before I mailed it, there were times when these transactions dragged out too. Sometimes they made it seem like it was super urgent, but then they took forever to send me the payment. And then when they finally did, it was even more urgent on their part because they wasted so much time and that totally stressed me out. Plus, I had to pack and mail the item and that also took time. And it was one of my least favorite activities that I had to do, and I usually did it with a resentful attitude. I kept holding out hope that they eventually want to build a business. And whenever they gave me any indication that they might want to do something like a party or a vendor event or a fundraiser, I went way overboard trying to give them everything I thought they would need so they could be successful. I gave them scripts and graphics. I loaned them display items for their events, and I spent hours training them one-on-one. I was more invested in their success than they were because I thought, well, if they're successful, then maybe that would mean I was successful too. I planned all kinds of training to serve everyone. I didn't want my hobbyists to feel like they were being pressured to work their business. So I planned business training for my downline who were working their businesses. And I planned product training for my downline who weren't just so I could get in front of them. The worst part was what all this did to my mindset. I convinced myself that this was temporary and that everything would change when I got my leadership title. I'm not sure if I thought my team would change or if I would change who I attracted to it, but a title didn't do anything to fix anything. In fact, in some ways, it made it worse. I was proud that I promoted and I liked the perks and the extra support, but I felt like a phony because I didn't feel like a leader and my team didn't act like a team. 
I had to work harder to make up the numbers that I was hoping my team would contribute, and it wasn't very motivating or fun to just have a few people to recognize. I started to question if this was worth it and if I could ever be successful. And every time I did that, I set myself back or at least stalled my progress. I had such a lack mindset that was fueled by a desperate desire to succeed that it impeded my being able to see the big picture and the possibilities of this business. I got caught up in the recognition, the incentives, and the perks, and I didn't take the time to calculate the long-term cost of what I was doing to earn everything. If my business was a meal plan, it would have been one with highly processed foods that don't sustain you and leave you feeling bloated and not full. Because selling the kit and the discount were faster and easier ways to get someone to sign, they became the main ways I recruited. I was playing the numbers game, but the big problem was that I was so focused on the numbers, it became harder and harder to make the shifts that I needed to make in my mindset and my actions to attract and recruit people who actually wanted a business. I knew I would have to slow down to make those shifts, and I thought that would cost me way too much time. I didn't realize that once I made those shifts, I would be able to speed up and make even more progress. When I was in graduate school in 1987, I had to write a lot of papers, and home computers were a relatively new thing at the time. So I used the same writing process I used when I was in college. I would make notes on index cards, and then I wrote the entire thing on notebook paper, and then I would type the final draft on a typewriter. It was very laborious. Plus, the papers had to be formatted in a certain way, which meant that I had to plan ahead when I was typing so that I left enough room at the bottom of each paper for the footnotes and the references. And I have a learning disability when it comes to spelling, so I don't even recognize when I spell a word incorrectly. And I remember getting a very undesirable grade on a paper, not because of the content, but because of the spelling errors. One of my classmates asked me, why didn't I use the department's computers to write my papers? And I said to her, I don't have time to learn how to use them. And her response was, you don't have time not to. Once I got through the learning curve, the quality of my papers went up and the time it took to write them went down. Recruiting everyone who was over 18, didn't live in my house and was breathing, got me a leadership title and some trips, but it also got me burned out. Even though I was a top producer, I wasn't having any fun and I almost quit. In fact, I was planning on quitting right after I got off the ship for my second incentive trip. But then my friends introduced me to their coach and she pointed out that if I continued doing what I was doing, I was going to get more of what I was getting. And if I wanted to have an engaged and productive team, I had to think, feel, and act like a team builder. Continuing to recruit anyone by any means possible wasn't going to help me. It also wasn't going to teach me how to recruit the team I really wanted. Making the shifts that I needed to make might have temporarily slowed down my results, but the results that I was getting weren't the ones I wanted anyway. Once I made those shifts, I recruited the team I really wanted, and I continued to promote through the career plan. Now, I know it's hard and sometimes scary to make changes to what you're doing, especially if you're getting results from what you're doing. But when you add up what it's costing you, you're going to realize that it's worth it to make them. It's not too early for you to start recruiting the right people the right way, and it's not too late either. So let's wrap up by talking about how to start making some of those shifts and what to do if your team is made up of a lot of hobbyists and kidnappers. So kidnappers and business builders ask themselves three questions before they join. Kidnappers ask themselves, is this product something I want to buy a lot of? Is the kid a good deal? And is this going to be easy? 
Now, if you talk about the consultant discount and the deal people get on the kit without talking about the opportunity, or even if you lead with a discount in the kit, you'll attract kidnappers. Also, if you talk about how easy the products are to sell and how they practically sell themselves and that people just have to share their website with their friends and they'll have a continuous business, you'll attract kidnappers. Now, business builders ask themselves different questions. The first question they ask themselves is, can being a consultant meet my needs? And they're going to have two needs. One need is to make money and then they'll have another need. Because if they just want to make money, they can just go get a job. And that's way easier than building a direct sales business. But if they want to make money on a flexible schedule, or if they want to be part of something, or if they want something for themselves, or they want to get recognition, then a lot of times jobs aren't going to give them that. But a direct sales business will. The second question is, can I be successful? They need to know that there's a market for the products and that people buy them and that they can quickly learn the skills they need to know to be successful. And the third question is, can you help me be successful? They need to know that you're able to train and support them. Business builders need yeses to all three questions before they'll join. They'll get their yeses by observing your business and how you show up in it. In the previous episode called How to Attract and Recruit People Who Actually Want a Business, I give you lots of ways to help your customers get yeses to those three questions. If you realize that you have changes to make after you listen to this episode and the previous episode, then make the changes and then structure your training and support so you can lead the people who want to build a business. Expect that when people join your team, they want to build a business and structure your training and support with that in mind. Everyone should know how to use the back office, place orders, set up parties, and find resources. And also expect that everyone will take responsibility for her own success and know how to access the resources that she needs to achieve her goals. Now, if the changes that you're going to make are minor, then make as many as you can as quickly as you can. Now, if these changes are major changes and your current team is needy or wants you to support them as if they were customers and not consultants, then pick the one thing that you think will make the biggest impact or is the easiest to implement and do that first. Now you can make an announcement about it or just implement it. If you decide you want to implement office hours and you want to be done working at seven o'clock every night and not start working again until 10 o'clock in the morning, then you can either make that announcement or just go ahead and do it. When you stop responding to your team after seven o'clock, they're eventually going to figure it out. They might still message you at nine o'clock, but that doesn't mean you have to respond or that they even expect a response. If you're recapping all the home office announcements, then just stop doing it. Or if you want, you can post something like check out all the latest news and updates in your back office or wherever they're going to find them. And if it's information they want to get, they'll figure out how to get it. You don't need to spoon feed them everything and be the liaison from the home office to them. This is their business. Let them run their business. Making these shifts is probably going to be harder for you than it is for your team. And it's also going to be uncomfortable for you, but it's the only way that you're going to grow and your team's going to grow. When one of my leader friends was making these shifts in her business, she came up with a motto that her team can either get on board or get out of the way. Now, she didn't say that to them, but that's how she showed up. So she made the changes she needed to make and the people who got on board with them thrived. The people who didn't, well, they eventually dropped off and the same thing's going to happen for you. Some of your team members will get on board with the shifts that you're making and they're going to start showing up differently. They're going to be more independent and they're going to grow. A few of your team members who are kidnappers and hobbyists 
are going to be a little miff that you're not serving them like customers anymore. But it's really not going to be that big of a deal. And there's really not going to be that many of them. So as long as you don't make a big deal about it, then it's going to be just fine. And if you want to blame me, tell them I told you to do it. Most of your kidnappers and hobbyists aren't going to care. They're probably not even going to notice. Like I said, these shifts will be harder for you to implement than they will be for your team to receive. But once you get through the transition, you'll all get better and faster results. But if you don't make these shifts, you're not only delaying your progress, you're also pushing yourself back. So if you have any questions or you want to share any wins, I would love to hear about them. So send me a DM or post in the Facebook group. Thank you for tuning in. And be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss anything. And if you haven't already, leave a five-star review and tell your friends about the podcast. If you have any questions about anything you heard on this episode, or if you have a topic you want me to talk about, send me a DM. I'm at Kelly D. Northcutt on Instagram. And I love to hear from you and celebrate your success.